You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning. Good to see you today. I don't know about you, but I thought that bass line was kind of cranking in that last song. What do you think, Marlena? Just a little? She was seeing her backstage running to get out here in time. She almost missed her cue, but I'm glad she did. It was pretty awesome. Well, uh, I'm excited about uh, just being here today. Uh, coming off of our parenting workshop yesterday, uh, the Fuqua's and the Strobels just did a phenomenal job, which uh, really makes me grateful to be in a church where we have so many different examples of men and women that really are living out the purpose that God has designed for them personally. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we are on part two of our series, as Brian said earlier, a beautiful design. And what we've been talking about is God's design for men and women, what that looks like, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. And Brian started us out last week in Genesis 1, 26, which reads, And God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. And with that, just thinking that through, God in his image, what are some of the things that come to mind when you think about something that's made to look like something else? Anybody? Copy. I mean, yeah, we, you see it right up here. I mean, we got a reflection going on, right? And ultimately, that's what we're called to as Christians. So today, what we're going to do is take a closer look at the purpose of man and woman, starting out with man. What is the purpose of man? Rudy kind of tagged it in communion, you know, really striving to imitate God, God's example. And uh, with that, there's three words that I want you to keep in mind. Uh, I'm not quite sure why it went this way when I was uh, back in elementary school, and that it didn't make sense to me, and that the spelling didn't, wasn't representative of the uh, euphemism that was used. But you guys remember the three R's? What were they? <laughs> okay, and they, they wonder why we're kind of messed up when it comes to our spelling, right? <laughs> I mean, how many times do we hear that over and over again, the three R's? Today, I, I do have three R's for you. It's representation, responsibility, and relationship. And we'll, we'll kind of revisit them as we go through things this morning. Genesis 2, verse 8, if you'll turn there with me. Genesis 2, verse 8 reads, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, and I, I love this about God. Uh, Andre Costa and I have the opportunity to get down and pray at the beach from time to time. And the thing that amazes me about God is God meets our needs, but how far beyond that did he go? I mean, the reality, what do we really need? Oxygen, you know, wonderful H2O. We need that water. A little bit of a shortage of that in California, but I don't think any of us are dying of dehydration yet. Some of our lawns look a little sketchy, but, you know. Um, we, need, we need food, we need water, we need warmth, shelters, basic things. But you get down to the ocean, you're down there in Rodano, and you look out at the point in PV, and it's like, why? Yeah. I mean, it's just so above and beyond what we need. Yet, as we see here in Genesis, God wasn't only concerned within our, with our needs, but there's this degree of wanting us to just be mystified, to be pleased, to be in awe of God. And that's what we see here. Verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. You know, we, we, it's, it's kind of interesting. We have this theme right from the get-go in that 
there are responsibilities that we have. There's stewardship involved here that God gave to the man. And it, it, again, oh God, you know, has some directions, has some things that he expects, but he goes on with a blessing. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. For on that day, the Lord, your, or, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper as his compliment. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of the ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. You know, with these uh, brief verses we just went through this morning, in the creation account, they show why God created man. You know, recently we had a church retreat for those of you visiting with us out in uh, Palm Springs uh, during the summer. You may be wondering why Palm Springs in the summer, but it's cheap. <laughs> Thank you, whoever that was. I mean, you know, we just believe in keeping it real around here. But, I mean, it was an incredible time together. And the primary focus was the book of Ephesians, which talks about first three chapters are really just Paul establishing how amazing God is. Why would God even want a relationship with us? With that relationship, what God has done for us, how he's lavished blessing upon blessing upon blessing on us. And then the, the final three chapters of the book kind of makes its way into with what God has done, what should that move and motivate our hearts to embrace and want to do? God has lavished us with incredible wealth. And you know, when, you, when I think of the, the picture of the garden and, you know, those times with Andre on the coast, we get up the mountains or whatever it may be. There's so much beauty that we have today in this world that is such a mess. What must the garden have been like? And keep in mind, you have the whole world. God created the world, but he set up this one special place for Adam. Look at the blessing that was just poured out. You know, and with that kind of transition here, okay, so God is good, God is incredible, lavishes with all this stuff. But what is, what's the expectation? What is the purpose of man? Well, let's look at what God created. Genesis 2.15. There's a lot of different things we can see through the verses 15 through 17. Man is intelligent and physically strong. He's made responsible for planning and cultivating the garden. I mean, this is the responsibility he was given. God made it. You didn't have to worry about the creation part, the creativity part, all of whatever it was that went into this incredible place, I'm just asking you to take care of it. Be my steward. We see the man has the ability to communicate with others. We see him talking with God. We see him referencing what God created for him as he presented his wife to him, as he presented Eve to Adam. And just these relationships right out of the get-go here. Man is seen to have needs and drives that have to be met both by the environment and by God. And God knew that. I believe that's one of the reasons he, he took things to such another extreme. I believe that is what inspires so many of our artists today. You know, the beauty of this world, we, we look at it with the art, that's, the paintings that are painted, the sculptures that are sculpted, the music that's written, stories that are written. I believe that, that, that is, it's something that's inherent in people because God put it there, but he gives us all these things that we can take in and explore. And it just, we continue to be curious, what else is out there? 
you know, we got, we got to talk with the Fuquays a little bit, and they were talking about some of their travels and spent a little bit of time in Austria, spent a little bit of time in Italy, and kind of the differences in the cultures. I mean, Austria looks like Disneyland. I mean, everything's meticulous. Everything's in place. The grasses are green. The flowers are just overflowing out of the balconies. The smell of the flowers. Yet, they say that the food was kind of bland. I've never eaten there. That's what Fuquay said. <laughs> and then with Italy, you know, kind of dirty, kind of dusty. But man, they take pride in the food. They basically say every meal they had was just amazing. And this is over dinner, and I'm eating, and I'm, I'm getting hungrier. I mean, it's like, let's cool it a little bit. But again, that's the amazing God that we have. You know, man was designed as a spiritual being who requires spiritual direction and godly fellowship for his life. And really understanding that he's given us the ability to have care for one another, expressing appreciation, to be able to fall in love, all these different things, being able to express appreciation. And that God is right there at that time interacting with him. Man was a being of perfection, of immortality, a being who is morally perfect, physically perfect, spiritually perfect. But I think with that curiosity sometimes, you know, they say curiosity kills the cat. Well, I think it's more applicable to you and me, don't you agree? I mean, think about some of the places that curiosity have led us. You know, as a little kid, playing with matches, uh, you know, lighting the neighbor's field on fire. I mean, you know, oh, man, I wonder what happens when you do this. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's, again, how we're designed, but God has established some boundaries. We'll, we'll look at those a little bit closer in a moment, but man is curious and desirous of things which look attractive and beneficial, even if it leads to evil. You know, the trees in the garden and the prohibition governing the tree that God had established with that tree of knowledge and good and evil, it shows us that because of, again, God gave them everything. Keep in mind, the entire world, this one little garden for just the two of them, the entire planet, but this is the most amazing spot on the planet. Just stay away from that tree. Boundaries. You know, Jesus, Paul talked about the world. We're in the world. We have to deal with it on a daily basis, but we're not to buy in to the world. And those are, that's the reason for boundaries. And this is what God established right here at the beginning. And that's what I love about God throughout the Bible. His plan is spot on. Wherever it is you read it, it is spot on directing us to where we are today. So what is the purpose of man? Well, it was revealed in these first three verses here that we looked at. You know what I think? I, where do we go? You know, actually, I'm, I'm good. Let me go back there. Talked about it earlier on the front side, representation. You know, representation of God the Father. We're created in his image. We are put on this planet to represent God. Responsibility. What was, what was Adam entrusted with? The garden. All the animals in the garden. His wife. God gave it all to him. Just take care of it. And then ultimately, he was also entrusted with maintaining relationships. He was entrusted with maintaining his relationship with God. And if he had really taken that to heart, he would have made sure that he was there to protect his wife at this point in time when Satan engaged her. Thinking through that, again, those three R's. The Lord God took man and he put him in the garden. God made this incredible paradise. The garden was the most perfect place imaginable. Adam had all that. And the only expectation was live within these boundaries and leave that tree alone. But Adam lost sight of that. And became passive. You know, and this is a problem with men today. That's one of the things I love about the church. I think we've done a lot to, to overcome 
wounds from the past, different issues we've had growing up, whether it be from a parental standpoint or whatever it is that we've had to contend with in society. But I think this still can be an issue with men today, even as Christians. Passivity that leads to silence. We, we know what we're called to as men. We know the role that we've been called to. It doesn't matter if you're single, campus, teen, married. It doesn't matter. But when you see a wrong and you don't engage, or you know a right and you don't follow it, it's rooted in passivity. I mean, you know, James, James uh, really hits it in James 4, 17. If you know the good that you ought to do and you don't, you sin. Adam knew. Even with that, he knew it in relationship to what was going on with God and what God had established, but his wife's like, hey, you know, this looks kind of cool. Hey, try this out. It's pretty good. He knew it was wrong, but he was passive. He didn't take a stand. wasn't a man of conviction. There's a quote from Larry Crabb that uh, reads, the silence of Adam is the beginning of every man's failure. From the rebellion of Cain to the impatience of Moses, from the weakness of Peter to my failure yesterday to love my wife well. And there's a picture a disturbing but revealing one of the nature of our failure. Since Adam, every man has an unnatural tendency to remain silent when he should speak. As a result, Satan keeps winning too many victories in our society, in our churches, in the lives of our wives, children, and friends. It's time for men to recover their voices, to listen to God, and to speak. You know, we think about society today. You know, we hear about the fatherless homes and just the crime and all these different things that go on. If it was a matter of listening to God's voice and taking a stand on that and speaking, what a different place the world would be today. God knows what's best for us. God created us. God saved us. You look at what was established at the beginning. In fact, he was sent Jesus to die for us. But even with that, as there were boundaries in the garden, there's boundaries today. You know, for those of us that have counted the cost and chosen to become Christians, to surrender to God, Paul gives a description of our past in Ephesians 2, verse 4. If you could uh, catch me up to that slide, please. It's actually slide 7. Ephesians 2, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raises up and has seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these which God prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. You know, what do real men look like? Well, I'll put this next slide up on the screen here and uh, see what you guys' thoughts are. Right. Now, why the chuckles? <laughs> there isn't a man in here that hasn't sat there screaming just like Maximus or Leonidas when they're watching those movies. Now, what do these guys have in common? A couple of them are real, a couple of them maybe not so much. But what do they have in common? They're warriors. Every single one of those men had a purpose. That's the problem with society today. What is the purpose? Get good grades. Get great careers. 
become a professional athlete? Unfortunately, those are the world's goals. And the reason I say unfortunate is because more often than not, God's not a part of that. I mean, there are incredible athletes that put God first. There are, we've got a lot of incredible professionals in this group that put God first. A lot of incredible students in this group that put God first. But this isn't necessarily representative of what we have in society today. And that degree of passivity on our part, sometimes when it comes to just speaking, what we've got, how we've been blessed, how we've been lavished, how our lives have changed, how our marriage has been saved. I love Ron White. I mean, the degree of humility he had when the light finally went on, when he was going through that small group series. And guys, if you're not getting your friends and family out to those things, we're missing more Ron White's, let me just tell you. That is such an incredible setting to be able to sit down in somebody's home with a meal and take a look at spiritual things and figure out how to apply those things to our lives. See, God knows what's best for us. And when it comes to real men, thinking this through, there is a purpose involved. What is your purpose today as you sit here? You know, realizing who you are and why we were created is what makes us men. We were created with a purpose in mind. Now, this is what makes a man, right? This is what makes a man a man. Biology, right? Right? I mean, isn't, you know, you got that XY chromosome and the XX chromosome. I mean, isn't that the difference from a biological standpoint? Biology doesn't make a man. Biology says he's male, but his biology does not dictate if he's a man or not. My son's a male, right? Five years old, was my son a man? Why not? We'll talk about it a little bit, a little bit further into this. <laughs> he wasn't a man. He was male. God's role for the man is something the Bible defines as headship. And here's the definition. Male headship is a unique leadership of man in establishing order for human flourishing. Why isn't the world flourishing? Why do we have a country like Lebanon with 4 million people in their population and on top of that 2.5 million refugees? Because there aren't enough real men in the world taking a stand on and for God. That's the issue. There's no way to argue this. Whether you want to look at it from a sociological standpoint or an economical standpoint, you can throw out whatever the coal is that you want. No one could say with any intelligent or any intellectual credibility that the home is a better place when there aren't men there. No one can say that the home is the best best place for children to be brought up in a fatherless environment. What's best for daughters is a man not to be anywhere near them. What's best for women is for men to have no interest. No one can say that. All the destruction that we see and experience today, too, was ushered in just because Adam took for granted how blessed he was and wasn't willing to respect those two minor details that God put out there for him. He forgot who he was, that he was the representation of God. He shirked his responsibility when it came to his wife in the garden. And he also showed total disdain for God who had given him everything, which ultimately tainted his relationship with God as well as his wife, Eve. And then you, you just you extrapolate it on out. You look at everything that took place after that. I mean, look at his sons. Oh my gosh, the first murder. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that one little thing maybe isn't such a little thing. 
I mean, that little thing can have a ripple effect that is absolutely destructive. But in the moment, with that desirous feeling that we have, yeah, you know, it's uh, whatever. You know, I mean, I don't think God's going to care about this one little thing. Why shouldn't he? God knows what's best for us. See, where men refuse to be men, things crumble and fall apart. We've all had the opportunity, most of us have had the opportunity to go into some of our poorer communities. What do you find? Fatherless homes, broken marriages, absentee dads. And you know, with all that said, I would never say that sentence without following up to this one, to the single moms and widows. Where the ideal is lacking, grace always abounds. Don't lose heart. All throughout the Bible, we see moms just making these pleas, clinging on to God and the relationship with God, whoever the prophet was at the time, whoever it was that was speaking about God, and just pleading for the condition of their children. God will enter that space, and he's going to be merciful, and he's going to be gracious, so don't lose heart. You know, right here, we've got the beauty of a church family. Most of you know my background wasn't until I was 32 years old and I became a Christian and became a part of this church that for the first time in my life I had male mentoring. I actually had spiritual dads in the faith where I had no one that was giving any form of direction prior to that. And it was, it was so awesome to see real men modeling real manhood. What it meant to be a dad, what it meant to be a husband. So again, single moms, we got some single dads in the group as well. God takes care of that. God will fill that void. And just really understanding what an amazing God that we have. And being, again, being grateful for what we've been blessed with right here in our family, the church. You know, getting back to the boys and men. Here's what was different about my five-year-old as a male, but not a man. So what made my five-year-old a boy. Was he a taker or a giver? Well, you guys are quick this morning, man. Paying attention so far, that's a good thing, too. I'm feeling a little bit better about the sermon right now. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what do we hear? That's mine. You know, it's kind of like the seagulls in Saving Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in the course of a day I heard mine. But that's the difference. That's how little boys act. It's not biblical, godly men action. That's not the case. Godly men are self-sacrificing for the good of God their family, their wife, for the good of their children and others. Self-sacrificing for the good of the church, for the good of the community. Self-sacrificing love is the mark of biblical masculinity. Jesus Christ! Biblical masculinity, our Savior. That's what an amazing God that we had, even with what Adam, what happened with Adam in the garden and the boundaries that God established after that with Moses. He was still willing to come down in the flesh and give up everything he had, lavish upon us everything he had, so we'd have the opportunity to have a relationship with him for eternity. Self-sacrificing. Men aren't takers. Boys are. Men are givers. Self-sacrificing love marks the headship of men. You know, David's dying. We see uh, on his deathbed, he's given some instruction to Solomon in 1 Kings 2. Verse 1 through 4. With everything that David had been through, all the things that he had seen, you know, there was a plethora of guidance he could have given to Solomon on his deathbed. It's very simple, very brief, 
but it's something that really should resound with each and every one of us as men today. 1 Kings 2, verse 1. It says that the, the time approached for David to die, he instructed his son Solomon, As for me, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong and be courageous like a man, and keep your obligation to the Lord, your God to walk in. Walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses so you will have success in everything you do and wherever you turn. What incredible direction. You know, how I would have loved to have had that for my dad as a kid. How I would have loved to have had that for my dad as an adult. But again, this is where God's kingdom is so incredible and that God knows where to meet us, how to meet us, how to take care of us, how to give us what we maybe didn't have at different times in our life. You know, it's interesting, some of the uh, other translations, the CEV, the direction is be brave. In the GNB, it's be determined. In the GW, God's word says be mature. NCV, be a leader. Message, show what you were made of. Problem with the fabric of the world today, where are the real men? We've got two examples this morning that I wanted to share with you. One of them is Richard Rascola. And this uh, gentleman, we've got the Twin Towers there, or where the Twin Towers used to be, on the left side of the screen there. It says, Richard Rascola was instrumental in the evacuation of thousands of people during the 9-11 attacks. As the director of security at Morgan Stanley, Rascola was a stickler for his building safety and held twice yearly evacuation drills to get people out. When the attacks happened and the tower next to Rascola's was hit, he put his plan into action and calmly instructed people to leave right up to, until the moment he was killed. Rescorla's actions were considered instrumental in the successful evacuation of over 2,500 people. Self-sacrificing, put others before himself. The man had a plan. Second one with the uh, helicopter records, uh, rescues over here. Actually, I, yeah, that's Arlen. Let's see, Arlen Rister, okay. I think I've got the names confused on the pictures, but the stories are the same. When Air Florida Flight 90 smashed into a frozen lake in the middle of a snowstorm, all but six passengers were killed. Some 20 minutes later, a helicopter arrived to rescue the survivors. After getting one man to safety, the helicopter threw a life ring to Arlen Williams, who immediately gave it to the passenger next to him. When the helicopter came back for a third time, he did the same thing again and again and again. When the helicopter came back at a final time, Arlen was dead. He had sacrificed every last ounce of strength to save complete strangers. These are real men. Givers, not takers. You know, we've got a lot of those men in our fellowship. We had the opportunity to hear from Dan Strobel yesterday. In our messed up world, without God, Dan would have walked away from his wife and kids. It's a reality. Brian Adams is a real man. He understood his relationship with God and some of the things that were going on in his life and walked away from a life of addiction to make Jesus Christ Lord of his life. But it didn't stop there. He helps other men do the same thing. Anthony Sivitonich. We had a need in our kids' kingdom when the Manjis left. Again, a real man. Give her, not a taker. I don't know that he was totally excited about it, but he saw the fact that there was a need. You know, he, I, you look at these guys up on the screen. I don't know how excited they were about what was going on and what they were doing, but they were more concerned with others than themselves. It goes back to the whole thing I preached on a few months ago, temple model versus the Jesus model. More concerned with the you next to you. And that's what represents real men. 
So finally, with this, when it comes to practicing headship, it's not just in sacrificial love, but most importantly, in setting up the spiritual climate of the household that you live in. And again, it doesn't matter if you're married, single, campus, or teen. What is the spiritual condition of your household? What do you establish there as a man? You know, is it a matter of your household serving the Lord? Man exercises headship by providing physical care for himself and others. And what this means is he's not lazy, but his life is marked by hard work. And I think really understanding this, there's no place in biblical masculinity for lazy men, for a lazy man. God has not designed the man to be bored or lazy. Just keeping in mind again what we have here. Real men are the representation of God. They understand the responsibility that comes with that, and they're focused on the vertical relationship first and foremost, and then their horizontal relationships. So here's the bottom line. If we're not focused on the vertical, if we're not focused on relationship with God, what are the rest of the relationships going to look like? I mean, that's one of the things that's so awesome about discipleship. It's not a bunch of people just getting together and, you know, dude, you're a derelict. Have a nice life. <laughs> we're in each other's lives. And there's a spiritual direction that we get from God in the Bible that helps us all grow and mature. This is that iron sharpening iron. We engage on that level. That's the thing that makes a difference between this church and any other church. I mean, I've talked to pastors. They, you know, they're like, yeah, I know there's murder going on in my fellowship. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, I know there's sexual morality all over the place. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, I know the teens are sleeping with each other. What am I supposed to do? That's on them. I just preach the word. It's not the case. Because we're called to be relational with God. We're called to be relational with one another. So that's how we define the role and purpose of man. Now I want to take some time to uh, take a look at the woman here. Let's look at this together. Genesis 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. A few of the women excited about this part. That's a good thing. Genesis 2, verse... (laughs) Jackie, we'll see. She added the notes, so just kind of keep that in mind. (laughs) Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, we know this. He took a rib. He uh, formed the woman out of it. He presented it to uh, Adam. And it kind of established what that relationship should look like. Now, here's the thing. First thing that stands out in this, outside of being scriptural, and, uh, you know, not just looking at a historical document, is there was one Eve. Things kind of interesting. We got God with the ability to do whatever he wants to do, create whatever he wants. Um, why didn't we have polygamy right out of the gate? You know, I mean, right? Because God knew that was enough. A helpmate, a helper. There wasn't any reason for there to be, you know, Eve and Evelyn and whatever the other Eve, you know, you want to kind of throw on it moving forward there. God created one woman. He pulls the woman from the man's side with the connotations of intimacy and closeness. I mean, you know, those of you that disciple me, you know, this intimacy and closeness thing is something I really have to work hard on. It just doesn't come naturally. I couldn't imagine being intimate and close with multiple women. I mean, what are people thinking? <laughs> Whew. I mean, stress just thinking about that. <laughs> but now, without said, what we saw concerning the man was that he was placed in the garden, commanded by God to work and to keep it, to be responsible for it, to be a steward. These two phrases, work it and keep it, are, again, what helps define man. Now, when it comes to the... Uh, 
this whole situation with helper or helpmate, I think the world does an incredible distortion on this, and part of it is taking things out of context. Here's the phrase, it's used twice in the text, a helper fit for him. And what I want to do is I want to break up the phrase into two ideas, a helper and fit for him. Both of those are going to matter. The word helper is a difficult word because in the Hebrew, it's highly contextualized. I mean, it is so dependent upon the rest of the sentence structure, the other words that are in there with it, the words around it. And that's really the only way to make sense of it. Here's the English equivalent. The word fast in English is a difficult word. How many of you can think of four or five different things, four or five different definitions for the word fast? Some of you aren't fast, but anyway. <laughs> there are a few of you that raised your hands. It can mean speed, which some of you weren't this morning, but we'll leave that one alone now. It can mean abstaining from food, right? It can also mean stubbornness in a position. He holds fast to his position. It can also mean a type of shady dealings, fast dealings. You know, how many of you have ever been hustled by a car salesman? I, you know, the only reason you're not raising your hands, you know I used to be one. I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> but the only way to know what one is talking about is to take the word and put it into a sentence, right? Here we go. If I say last Sunday I was watching the Steelers game and Antonio Brown was fast, I don't think I'm going to have anybody saying, you mean he went the entire game and he didn't eat anything? If I tell you about a friend of mine who holds fast to biblical truth, you don't think I'm talking about somebody who's got these speedy, shady deals going on. You know, because the other words around the word dictate the meaning of fast. It's the same thing with the Hebrew word ezer, which is on the screen behind me here. It's used most often to define God engaging with man. The word help, ezer, is most often used in regard to God helping man. So let me give you a couple of these in text. Exodus 18.4 says that the name of the other, Eli, Ezer, here's the meaning of the name. It's defined. It says, for he said, the God of my father was my help. God is his helper. God is his helpmate. Deuteronomy 33, verse 7, again, as with God as a helper, it says, and this he said of Judah, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against our adversaries. So God is our helper. And this thing is interesting. In every single context in which Ezer is used, it denotes someone helping the one with primary responsibility. Let me give you another example. If Bernardo comes to me and he says, Steve, can you help me with this? He's not asking me to do my job. What he's asking me to do is something that has been, he's been tasked with, but maybe he doesn't feel like he's got the bandwidth at the time or whatever. There may be so many other things going on. He wants to make sure that that task he's been given gets done. In order for that to take place, he's going to need help. So he's asking for me to come help him. To say that a woman who's helping someone is inferior to the one with the primary responsibility is to make the accusation that God is inferior because of the help that he gives his children. A couple of sisters like that. So what's the reality about the woman? She is a helper fit for him. Not a helper like him, but a helper fit with him. Are you with me? Yes. Amen. The phrase fit for him leads us to the idea of complementarian. It is a word. Look it up. It's basically a theological ideal where 
I don't know why they just didn't use the word symbiotic, honestly, but it's like a symbiotic relationship. The two complement each other. There's a benefit to the relationship. So when it comes to that, the man and the woman were created unique by God, both the image of God, equal in dignity, value, and worth, but they have been meant to complement one another, not compete against one another. And that can be a problem. Jackie's got a woman's meeting coming up in a few weeks. We'll probably address that there. I don't have enough time. But the weaknesses of the one that are strengthened by the strength of the other and vice versa, that's how it works. I mean, I do a ton of research for Sunday messages. We've got an agreement in my house because there's so much of it on paper usually. It has to get to my wife by Thursday. But I really trust Jackie when it comes to helping me edit down and making my ideas more concise. Sometimes she'll just have, she can take a paragraph of mine and say in two words what it took me a paragraph to say, and it's so much more lasting for you when you leave here. Versus, what the heck did he just say? And that's how it's supposed to work. You know, when we buck against God's system, bad things happen. Let's talk about it. Ephesians 5. And that's not where we're going. I just want to mention it, just kind of cover it briefly. We're going to go to Titus 2 in a minute. But in Ephesians 5, there's a great passage about husbands and wives. Everybody, when they talk about husbands and wives, wants to start with Ephesians 5.20. I, I used to joke about it, and it wasn't very funny. I thought it was at the time, but looking back, it was pretty stupid. I, I joked about how Ephesians 5.19 was highlighted with a black Sharpie. <laughs> you may want to open your Bible and take a look at it, and you'll find a little bit more humor in that, maybe. Or you may throw something at me, I don't know. But anyway. But if you go back and you read Ephesians in context... One of the things that stands out is this need for mutual submission right from the get-go. Getting along with one another. I mean, Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. Jesus considered others what? Better than himself. Uh, Romans 12, 1. I mean, it's it's everywhere we look. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. There's got to be this concern for others. So keep that in mind when it comes to mutual submission. You have this guideline for Christian behavior. This was established before the wife thing ever was talked about by Paul in Ephesians. Mutual respect. Love the, na- love the you next to you. It doesn't matter what gender, color, or marital status. What Paul means by mutual submission is what we've already covered. Men are exercising headship, but must do it in a way that's marked by sacrificial love. We show deference. We include. We want to know. We desire interaction. We value the intellect of our wives. We value the intellect of our single sisters, our campus sisters, our teen sisters that are part of the fellowship. We encourage and speak life into women as men. So we walk in mutual submission. We don't come home and say, hey, you know, uh, this is what we're doing, woman. Now, this word you won't find in the dictionary that's not headship. That's boneheadship. <laughs> I got to give credit where credit's due. That was my wife. <laughs> Titus 2 gives us some additional direction here. Titus 2. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You know, I, I just want to say something for the singles here just for a moment, too. 
And this is something that I've applied to anything I've ever really gone after wanting to become in God's kingdom. I don't care about titles, but I do care about God and I care about what God establishes for those titles that so many of us see and look to and some really desire to have. When I was a young Christian, I prayed for the qualifications of an elder. Didn't know if I'd ever be appointed, but I did understand the implications for my household. I prayed for that daily as a young Christian. So when it comes to anything where we're aspiring to be in God's kingdom, the thing that's key is not what you want to become. It's about the journey getting there. You want a husband? Really strive to go after the godly attributes of a, a godly spouse. You want a wife? Go after the attributes that God sets up and establishes and defines as a godly man. We're family. Family raises up family. And I think if we're more concerned with what God thinks rather than what everybody else thinks, even our church would be in a different place. So keep that in mind. I know there's going to be a lot of husband-wife stuff going forward, but you know what? There's something to be said for those qualifications because God, through his scriptures, defines those men and the women that need to be teaching everyone else that's a part of God's family. Here's what it says. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. You want a definition of mature, godly masculinity? Right there. There it is. Real man, older man. Life's issues, life's challenges, learning from mistakes. That's what puts you in a position, if you're God-focused, to have this kind of an impact on others. Older women, likewise, would be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. The last thing it says to women is to be kind and submissive to their husbands. See, the amount of power God has given women, I mean, you think about it, it's staggering. I learned a long time ago, through school to develop thick skin. You know, every time I preach the Bible, here's how it goes. Some people love it, some people care less, other people hate it. You've got to develop thick skin. You're not going to ever, always hit the mark with everybody at the same time. It's the same thing with scriptures. You read it one day, it has no application. You read it the next, it does. But, you know, even with thick skin, and this may be a surprise to me, my wife can mess me up. No. All that thick skin just vanishes with Jacqueline. She knows every weakness, every shortcoming, every inconsistency, everything. And, you know, there are those instances where what she says can pulverize my heart. Her words can keep me up at night sometimes thinking, oh, my gosh, really? And some of you may be thinking, bro, come on, man, you need to develop thicker skin towards your wife. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know, and sometimes I do, but I don't know that's necessarily a good thing. Because why would I ever want to sacrifice the emotional, spiritual intimacy that I want with my wife simply for the fear of me telling myself that if I say something a certain way or if this is what I say to her, she's going to hurt me. You never sacrifice intimacy for protection, especially not in the covenant of marriage. And I'm still trying to learn this one. I got a long ways to go. Prayerfully, I'll have a few more years to kind of get a handle on things. But, you know, and this applies to our singles and teens and campus as well when it comes to interaction. You know, we've got some incredibly strong single women in this mix. And the thing that I love about the strong women in this mix, I'm going to go ahead and throw the names out there and embarrass them, Betty, Kike, and Davida, is they know how to interact with the brothers most of the time. I, I'm just putting it out there most of the time. I don't want to put out there a closed-in statement. 
But I've seen a lot of their interactions, and let me just say personally, the interactions I've seen, they're very godly, they're very spiritual. There's a degree of concern, not just for their area of responsibility, but the singles as a whole, the church as a whole. And that's awesome. And we need more women like that, amen? But I'm telling you, the Bible says where in Ephesians 5, it's lived out accurately, the world has absolutely nothing negative to say. They can attack the idea, but if they go anywhere near you, they see the interaction, the fellowship in your homes, your marriages with your kids, wherever it is, it shuts them up. They see how you get along with other genders. They see how you get along with other races. You have people coming to you saying, wow, that's what I really want. Let's take a look at the church in the New Testament. Acts 8, verse 4. You need to turn there. I'll just go through these quickly. You know, what we see clearly in the New Testament is women were needed and necessary to the flourishing of the church body. Acts 8, verse 4. uh, You've got disciples who are preaching the gospel. Older women are teaching the younger women. Titus 2. uh, We've got Priscilla and Aquila who taught Apollos in Acts 18. Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. The women prayed and prophesied in the gathering of the church in Corinth. Women are not only needed, but necessary on all different fronts. What does it mean to be a helpmate if you're single? Let me start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean sitting around waiting for a husband. Here's the thing. There was a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament that we may or may not really see clearly. But in the Old Testament, the blessing was for children. In the New Testament, the blessing is disciples. See, the kingdom of God is at hand, and you've been called to actively play a part in that. Why do you want to sit around waiting for dinner and a movie when you've been invited to join this epic adventure in the universe that's happening right now that you've been invited to be a part of? And then just kind of putting it out there, extrapolating out a little bit, when's the last time you invited a male coworker to work? Church. I'm like, well, I'm hearing this. What? Oh, church. Thank you. Hey, man, I appreciate that. I, I felt like it was done respectfully. I don't take issue. We don't know how many days that we have left. So we've got to give ourselves men training the younger men. Getting our role on straight first, but then training the younger men. Women, older women, getting your role on straight, training the younger women. The only caveat we ever see in the Bible around this is that women don't exercise their gifts in a way that emasculates men or usurps their authority. Run and teach and train. Have yourself poured out for the glory of God and the good of the church. You are all indispensable. We need you. God needs you. Let me uh, move ahead here. Titus 2.12. Paul gives us an incredible description of what we have in the church, in light of what we see in the world. In the world, in our communities, more often than not, it's very easy to see the dysfunction, adultery. We hear about it in the workplace. We hear about it in school. The broken homes, the aggression, divorce, all these things. What would happen in this community if men lived the way God designed them to be and were really serious about it? What would happen in our community if women lived the way they were designed by God and flourished? I mean, wouldn't the South Bay Church be this incredibly bright light in our communities? You know, what happened in the place if women were experts in the strengths of their husbands? And so there would never be any word mentioned about their husband negatively, especially to other women that they have relationships with. What kind of bright light would there be in the community? Well, I'll tell you what would happen. We would attract 
a lot of busted up marriages, busted up relationships, busted up people that would flock to the light in hopes that the gospel would work in them. So in Titus 2, verse 12, Paul says, Grace arrives with its own instruction. Run away from anything that leads us away from God. Abandon the lusts and the passions of this world. Live life now in this age with the awareness and self-control, doing the right thing and keeping yourselves holy. Watch out for his return. Expect the blessed hope we all will share when our God and Savior, Jesus the Anointed, appears again. He gave his body for our sakes and will not only break us free from the chains of wickedness, but he will also prepare a community uncorrupted by the world that we call his own people who are passionate about doing the right thing. There's a new translation out there, too. I don't know if you guys have heard it or read it or not, but uh, it's pretty accurate in light of the message, which is definitively a paraphrase, but something you might want to take a look at. It it reads very easy. Um, I just love some of the things that I came across in this, that whole thing where he'll prepare a community uncorrupted by the world. This is what we have the opportunity doing as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it gets down to those three words again. Don't forget who you represent. And with that, represent. Don't forget the responsibility that you've been given by God. Be responsible. And protect the relationship that you have with God first and foremost and then with one another. For we are his creation, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Let's embrace who we are, representation of men and women of purpose, just like our God in heaven. We were all created with a purpose beyond ourselves, beyond the world, beyond this time. Let us each see our responsibility in this as we move forward. And in doing so, let us make sure we maintain our relationship with God and one another. God bless. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 